Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. ARCHICAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Michael Porras, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, it's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. I'm super interested in uh, this conversation, the work that you're doing in Detroit and the, and the projects that you're working on. So I'm looking forward to to having this conversation. Detroit is one of those cities that um, I was, I went to visit Detroit as a very young child. Uh, haven't been there since, but I'm fascinated about uh, of, of how it became where, where we all sort of have it in our mind where it is today. But now we're, we're coming in the last decade or so 
uh, it's being reborn, right, and and redeveloped and all kinds of things. And so I'm excited about having this conversation about Detroit. Um, Before we do that, though, I want to learn more about you. Let me introduce you, and then we'll we'll learn more about you and your history. Um, Michael Porras is founding principal of Macintosh Porras Associates, a full-service architecture, interior, and urban design practice in Birmingham, Michigan. Since returning to Detroit in 1995, Michael has been working to implement change in his hometown, preserving many of Detroit's 20th century landmark buildings, historic districts, and iconic neighborhoods. Michael designs, uh, Michael's design leadership has helped transform Detroit with projects such as the Foundation Hotel and the East Riverfront Framework Plan. Uh, Michael is currently working on an adaptive reuse of the 600 square, uh, 600,000, not 600, much bigger than 600 square feet, 600,000 square foot Mich- uh, Fisher body plant in Detroit uh, and a 600 prefabricated home community in Colorado. I'm super interested in the Fisher body plant because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a car guy. I grew up uh, with, with Chevys and Cadillacs and I remember the little Fisher body emblem on the Cadillacs. And so I'm, I'm, that's sort of a, a place that's near and dear to my heart. And so I'm interested in that, in where, where, what that is and where it's going. Um, Michael has recently been awarded the AIA Detroit Charles Blessing Award, recognizing an individual who shows leadership in planning and civic issues and exemplifies the vision, commitment, and the accomplishments of Charles A. Blessing. He's the visionary uh, Detroit city planner who committed himself to the pursuit the higher quality of life for all. Um, so, Michael, that shares a little bit about who you are and, and the work that you're doing. Um, I'd love to know more about you as an architect. Um, when did you discover your passion for architecture and maybe who or what inspired you to get started in this profession? Uh, I was pretty young. Um, my mother was an artist um, and from my, my father was a developer. So, I kind of got it from both sides. They were both from New York, my mother from Brooklyn, my dad from Manhattan. My mother had attended the Art Students League in NYU and danced with Martha Graham like back in the 40s. Yeah. So she had a pretty serious art background and a studio behind our house that I grew up working in um, in ceramics and sculpture. So, and, you know, so I grew up doing art and drawing. And I want to say I was probably like seven when I said I wanted to be an architect. And of course, you know, kid, you don't really know what that is, but right. I used to like drawing houses and, you know, I just, um, I was sort of fascinated by it just as a kid. And, and I grew up in a, in a 1955 um, mid-century house that was actually a prefabricated house oh, designed. Wow. Carl Koch, Koch, who's now known as the grandfather of prefab. And uh, so it was a tech built. It was a ranch tech built home and in uh, a whole neighborhood designed by him uh, here in, in Farmington Hills and um, just now really being rediscovered. But so I grew up in an atmosphere of, uh, you know, really great design and sort of, again, getting it back and forth. So I think that was a, a big yeah 
Okay. You, you had no choice but to become an architect. It was like this, 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 you had a mother who was an artist and a sculptor and a father who was a developer and you lived in an architecturally significant house in an architecturally significant neighborhood. It's like, did you know of any other <laughs> option? Right, exactly. And the neighborhood was full of designers, uh, you know, like great graphic designer across the street from Cranbrook and our designers. And so, you know, I grew up around this stuff, not really realizing. Yeah. Do you, do you remember, and it probably was too early to remember because your story is interesting because usually architects, when it's early, it's usually about nine or 10 years old. Um, and it's some, some event that happened in their life, but you sort of grew up in it. So you were sort of exposed to it your entire life. Do you remember a moment where you realized, oh, this is architecture and an architect is what I want to be? You know, I, 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 I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think I knew because my dad was in development, I met architects like Yamasaki when I was a kid and he actually, you know, um, who, and, uh, Louis Redstone, who was another one who had worked for Eliel Saarinen and had a practice here in, in Detroit. And, um, both of whom told me not to do it. <laughs> Typical architects. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and luckily I didn't listen to them. Yeah, that's um, nothing new, people. People, architects have been trying to, to uh, talk talk people well, out of being architects for and, generations. Yeah, and so it's, you know, I think it's something to be really conscious of when, you know, and frankly, I've been telling people lately that, you know, the, the, the excuse was, oh, it's really hard and, and you'll never make money. And I think these days, that's not necessarily true. Agreed. Principals and firms actually can make quite a bit of money, um, especially bigger corporate firms. And I don't think that gets said to students that often. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's not it's not really the poor man's profession that it used to be. Um, and there's a shortage of architects. So I think it's a disservice to continue that. Yeah. You know, that narrative so so you so you were exposed early um lived in a home that was architecturally significant so when you you decided you were going to be an architect very very young so how did that how did the path to becoming an architect look for you so yeah i so you know i took drafting classes in high school and you know i was working in my mother's studio all the time after school so i was I grew up around it um all my parents' friends um, lived in modern homes with, you know, with Eames and Knoll and, you know, all the great furniture. So, um, you know, when I'd go to other people's houses that were like colonial, I'd be like, <laughs> I thought there was something wrong with us because it was like different than, yeah. you know, other people. Um, little did I know I was super lucky to have, you know, an Eames rocking chair from 1953 and a George Nelson dresser in my room, you know, yeah, growing. Wow. Um, anyway, um, but, you know, so I had this idea of architecture. So I always thought, well, when I go to college, I'm going to study architecture. Now, uh, and I worked in high school, I worked in a firm uh, that used to do all the retail firm that did all the Kmarts across the country. So I was drafting Kmart parking wow. lots. Yeah. Um, which is kind of funny. Um, but so I started early. Um, and I went, you know, I went to, I, I lived in Israel for a year after high school. Um, 
and traveled and that was a great experience and then came back and went to school went to started um you know school to be an architect and and was immediately confronted with the prerequisites for bachelor science like mm-hmm. you know the stuff i wasn't crazy about like chemistry and you know calculus and um but i got through it i was at Mentor michigan undergrad um and then uh you know, worked during the summers in a firm here that was uh, uh, four partners that came out of Yamasaki's and one from IMP. Um, one of them had been the project architect for the World Trade Center. I'd worked on it for like 10 years. And so, you know, the drawings for that were in the print room where I wow. was. So I was going through, you know, it's like, um, and then I uh, graduated from Michigan and I went to New Haven, Connecticut and started working for Cesar Pelli. Um, and attended Yale part-time, focusing mostly on history, history of art, history of architecture, uh, modern history. Um, worked at Caesar, started there in 85, uh, when there were 15 to 20 people in the office, um, just coming out of the early 80s recession. And um, was there for two years, well, grew to 75, but great period to be there and you know worked on, I I don't even know how many projects, but projects all over the place from Carnegie Hall edition, the Pacific Design Center to, you know, projects and all over. It was a great experience. Um, and then I left there and I went to California um, to go to SciArc. And um, so in 87, uh, that was the year Michael Rotundi took over. And um, so my first semester, I had Tom Main um, for my studio, which was great. And Wolf Pre had just started teaching there that semester and Todd Williams. And, you know, it was like, you know, Denari, like Peter Zumthor was teaching there. Like it yeah. was, you know, an amazing. All the icons, the modern icons yeah, of the time. Except they weren't icons yet. Right. I mean, exactly. Before, right. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, this was 87. So certainly Morphsis was known. Todd Williams was known, but, you know, it wasn't, Peter Zumthor was not known at that point. Um, so I had, I had amazing, um, teachers there, uh, at SciArc. So I had Tom, I had Wolf Free, I had Robert McGurian, I had, uh, Craig Hodgetts and Baram Shardell and you know, Anthony Bidler and Kurt Forrester. And just like, it, 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 it couldn't have been a better time to be there and being in LA, uh, my first year I was working at, um, Frank Gehry's office, um, and Richard Meyer's office building models and, and doing stuff so it was a it was just a great place to be uh in the in the mid to late 80s and um and then i i worked for tom for, for morphosis for two years um while i was in school and um graduated uh into the into the in 1990 into the that recession um so i went to work in japan for uh four months uh, working on a theme park uh, in Kyushu in the southern island of Japan. That was, how did you how did you end up in J- Japan? Just chose I, we have to get out of here. I'm going to Japan. Uh, no, it was a it was through a friend. Uh, a friend's boyfriend was the head of design at this um, landmark entertainment uh, who did you know a lot of theme parks and Universal yeah. Studios and stuff like that. 
And they were hiring architects to go to Japan. I So I sent in my portfolio. I went okay. to interview. So it was an I opportunity. They, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know what the job was. They hired me, you know, paid me double what I'd been making, <laughs> sent me to Japan. I'm like, great. You know? How long, how long were you in Japan? Four months. And uh, it was, it was, it was really beautiful on the Southern Island of Japan, Beppu, which is like a vacation city. It's like they're Las Vegas only. It's, there's 4,000 onsen, 4,000 hot springs um, right on the ocean. It was just great. Were you, uh, were you but, there long enough to learn Jap- Japanese? I did have a, I did have a, a, a tutor and I learned enough to travel around. Yeah. I spent a month uh, at the end traveling around Japan um, and uh, two weeks in Kyoto alone visiting uh, temples and tea houses and gardens and, and Ando's work is really what I fell yeah. in love with. Yeah. One of my favorites. So, yeah. So that was, that was a great, uh, and honestly, it was a, it really changed my point of view because at that point I'd been in school for like 10 years. And, um, and next thing I know I'm in Japan working with artists um, at the theme park design directors and, colorists and you know different point of view and um i realized how dogmatic we were even though i had this really broad experience um you know we don't realize how dogmatic we are as architects until we work with artists yeah we have rules for themselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so that was great and then uh and honestly just um the time I spent looking at the landscapes and the gardens and the temples and the tea houses and just, it really um, changed some of my point of view. So what um, brought you back to the U S after four months? Well, that was, it was a, it was a, I had a, a three month contract. So mm-hmm. travel around for a month. Got it. Okay. Uh, I came back and um, went to work for um Keating, Mandernigan, Rote, uh, Richard Keating, Lauren Rote. Um, it was like a spinoff of SOM at that time. Was there for two years as a senior designer. And then, so back back in California? Back in LA, yeah. And then um, and then I went to Thane Roberts, who was, uh, we were doing Armani stores um, in San Francisco and in Beverly Hills and uh, did that for a while. Um, and basically at that point it was recession. So it was just following like wherever the work was. Right. Yeah. Um, I, re- I remember that recession. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky that I, I, I was the most I went without working was a month. So I just kept following the work yeah. and then they run out of work and I'd go on to the next one. And, um, and by the end of that, by 94, um, I was working at the Nadel partnership, which was a big corporate firm, um, and uh, doing a lot of work in China. It was early into China, almost 30 years ago. Uh, and that was fascinating. And actually a lot of it was master planning and city planning, all the just giant scale, like 50,000 units of housing. And, you know, um, the beginning of what's, you know, what's happened in China. Um, and that really got me interested in urban design actually. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I got licensed and basically looked around and thought, you know, what, where do I want to be in five years? And that was what made me realize what I do all this for and, oh, to go out on my own and yeah. to do my 
and work. There was nobody left I wanted to work for to learn. Yeah, you know. I mean, with, with that with that resume, it's like you checked all the boxes. It's like, where do I go now? I've done it all. It, it was, right. It was just like, uh, you know, I, it was time. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, there's the, the only thing holding me back at that point was paycheck. And, uh, you know, I had, I had some money saved up and realized I could start on my own and support myself if I had to, uh, for, you know, up to a year. And, um, and that's, that's what got me going. And what was, that's the beginning of, of Macintosh Boris. So that was the beginning of me on my own in LA. Okay. In LA. Okay. Yes. Doug Macintosh, um, was, we grew up together in the same neighborhood. Um, he was in a two-story tech build. So another, another born architect into. (laughs) Exactly. We grew up, we used to take art classes together. He, you know, we were, you know, we were friends. We went to Michigan together then. Uh, we went to New Haven together, worked at Cedar Pelly. So he stayed and got his finished his master's at Yale. I went to California. Um, he got a project in Detroit um, back around this time, 94. And, um, you know, we both left 15 years before and most of our friends had left. And so um, I had some time. So I came to Detroit for like three weeks to work with them. You know, we had a couple of houses and there were great projects. And um it just led to more. So next thing I knew, I was commuting between LA and Detroit. And uh, by the following summer of 95, I just packed up LA and moved to Detroit. And and started that firm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so that was in 95? Yeah, I, I originally came back in October of 94. And then by the summer of 95, we had actually moved into the office we're in. We were working out of a basement of a home then that we were renting. And um, and I really, it was partly, you know, again, at that point, I wasn't that interested in coming back to Detroit. I was, I was open to it. Okay, I'll go see. Um, and it was what, what got me, I mean, there was a few things. So our first clients were wealthy, sophisticated people. The first house we worked on was a, a great Gunnar Burkert's house from the 60s, the Lewis house. Um, you know, it had been on the cover of Architectural Record. It was definitely known at the time. And it was a renovation of that house for a couple who owned the largest um, antique Lalique glass collection in the in the world. Wow. And renovating the house for the collection and and that was actually great and um and then you know that led to other houses like that so we were getting these million dollar you know multi-million dollar homes how did you make those connections to get those early jobs at that level um well that so (laughs) that's a so doug's mother um was owned a modeling agency here she had started when we were kids and uh she supplied models for the auto shows so she was and she was a hustler she was just a real hustler and so uh that first house she got for Doug uh at the beauty salon sitting next to uh the client Mrs. Shapiro who was complaining she'd interviewed all these local architects yeah. didn't like them so Doug's mother was like, oh, well, my son's an architect, blah, blah, blah. And 
you know, uh, went in the back room and said, get your ass on a, on a plane <laughs> and uh, went home and changed her, her answering machine to, um, to be his office number, which to this day, our office number is her old phone number. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and that got us going. And then honestly, once you're in that circle, um, you know, we just started getting passed right, around. Right. Once you get and, one. So um, you leveraged your, your network to get that first job. <laughs> yes. Yes. It literally. Yes. And then it just turned into, you know, people they knew. And, and, uh, next thing we knew it was, uh, you know, that was, that was how that started. Um, cause the two of us coming back with the pedigree and the education, right. had, you know, there was, there wasn't the architects that were here were older. There was sort of a missing generation, mm-hmm. you know, with Detroit, in Detroit, it was, you know, there just weren't many people. Yeah, everybody like left. Right, exactly. So we were 32 and we're like, wow, this is, you know, a million, you know, it was a, it was garage additions in LA versus amazing houses on beautiful lakes in Detroit. Yeah. You know, and, and um, so that was it. But the biggest thing, the biggest attraction was when going downtown. And downtown at that point in Detroit was we look, you know, it was like Berlin after the war. Um, it was, it yeah, was, that's what I wanted to ask you. What was the state of Detroit in 95? Uh, it was Berlin after the war. There were yeah. 90 vacant buildings downtown. So it was nearly completely vacant. Um, barely anyone there. I mean, the, the Renaissance center had emptied out the sort of core of downtown and, and the core was these, well, these 90 vacant buildings were these amazing early 20th century skyscrapers that were built, you know, from 1900 to into the 1930 when Detroit boomed, when the auto industry right. exploded. And, um, and, you know, so it was New York, Chicago, and Detroit at that time. And Detroit at that time was like the Silicon Valley of today. Right. It was the tech center of the world. It was. And, and so the, the, the amount of money and the amount of um, development happening at the time was literally, it was, you know, in New York, Chicago, LA, or New York, Chicago, Detroit. So there was a, a real um, great history. And we used to actually say, you know, it was the first to grow. And then the first go, so it grew in this early 20th century, and then it actually started to decline in 1953. And when I say decline, I'm talking about the city of Detroit itself. Um, it, you know, that's when the freeways started getting built, and people started moving out to the suburbs. To this day, so there's like five million people in metropolitan Detroit, and 600,000 in Detroit proper. Um, and you know, so that's. But it was it was just we decided, you know, 32 years old, that's where we should be as young architects. We thought we could actually make a difference here. Um, and, uh, you know, New York and L.A. and Chicago and San Francisco, they were done. They were out of the oven, you know, and and um, I mean, there, of course, there's stuff to do there. But as young architects um, doing these, you know, billion dollar homes. And, you know, starting from, I don't want to say nothing because there was stuff there, but very little development happened in the city. 
Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running, and the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Arcat. Listen and subscribe right now at arcat.com slash podcast. That's arcat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So you were involved in in the rebirth, the, the renaissance of Detroit right from the beginning, right? Because you were there yes. before it started. Um, yes. What what started it? How did it how did it begin to come back? Um, well, it's, it's, so it never really went away. Um, it had it had declined for sure. Right. There were always people trying to get it going, but uh, it, it you know it it was it was a struggle. Um, we we the first thing that I that we got involved with was um, a committee for the mayor's office um, to um, there was a proposal at that time to tear down not just the Hudson's building, which eventually was torn down, but all the buildings on Woodward Avenue um, next to the Hudson's building from Grand Circus Park to um, Campus Marshes and to make a bigger park. And we thought that was a horrible idea. 
um, because there were, it was already surrounded by Campus Marches, and then down the street, the riverfront. It's like you didn't need it. You'd be looking at the backs of buildings, and um, the mayor was basically said, "Well, that's what he was being told," you know. And um, luckily, a woman um, we knew, Marilyn Wheaton, you know, said, "Well, you wanted to challenge that," and he actually said to her, "Well, if you can come up with a better idea, do it." So she went. And, you know, we met her through someone else and we got on this committee and worked for like six months coming up with an alternative of what to do with these, you know, rather than tear these down. And that was uh, basically to turn downtown into uh, um, and these old buildings to to um, renovate them and turn them into residential mixed use, you know, cultural entertainment. Right. Uh, district. And, you know, the mayor actually would say, well, why don't we have a Soho? And, you know, so it was like, so we looked at cities, a lot of other cities around the country, Denver and um, Charlotte and um, or uh, Charleston and Milwaukee, places that some of these things were happening. And then coming from LA, you know, Pasadena, Old Town Pasadena and Santa Monica, like I'd already seen that happen. New Haven had had some of this happen. Doug had actually worked on there in the Ninth Ward. So we had some background. Uh, so we, you know, we developed this plan. Um, it's called the New Avenues Plan. And um, and the mayor took it. And out of that, in 96, the Downtown uh, Detroit Partnership was formed. And that was a, a public-private entity to actually make this happen. Um, and um, and that was sort of the beginning of it. Wow. So that project was the seed of this, of this new um, renaissance that we all hear about in the news. That was, that was, this, it, that was the beginning of it, the tipping point. I, it was a very little tipping point, yes. Uh, the tipping point of uh, architects actually saying, hey, wait, don't tear these down. Right. We can renovate them. We can turn them into something. Um, they're worth something. Um, you know, and, and everyone looks at these other cities, you know, but meanwhile, all anyone did here was tear things down. Right. Um, so, yes, that was the beginning. Uh, and then, so this is 96, and then we spent the next uh, you, you know, the rest of the 90s, uh, trying to convince people to renovate buildings and, you know, or mothball them and not tear them down. Yeah. Well, well, what was your what was your argument for saving historic architecture rather than just tearing it down and putting up something new and modern? Well, there was a few. One was um, the they were Detroit. If you lost those, um, you'd have it'd be, you know, you'd have nothing. So you would be building Dallas or, you know, or, you know, Atlanta or, right. you know, basically um, there'd be, it wouldn't be authentic. Uh, so, you know, and they were rich and you couldn't, you couldn't replicate these right. today, you know, and um, that was a big one. Um, the more important one that actually got, um uh headway was uh the financial argument um 
So we knew Doug was very involved in preservation and was the head of Preservation Wayne. And you know, we knew about things like historic tax credits and nobody was utilizing them here. So um, there was federal historic tax credits. And then we actually helped work on getting this, the state to create state historic tax credits. And um, we actually, um, we, we helped create some historic districts so that when developers went to try to tear something down, they would have to go to the historic district commission. Right, so it right. was like a way to sort of like sneakily, you know, Right, put some barriers in the way so it wasn't so easy to just tear things down. Exactly. Yes. And yeah. um, so we spent a lot of time doing that, which from my background, you know, all this modern stuff, the 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 kernel for me was, you know, if you look back at like Mies, that glass tower he designed for Berlin, you know, that beautiful rendering of the, the glass tower within, and maybe it was Vienna, I don't remember. But, um, you know, so to do modern, you sort of need the context. And it's like, you don't want, we didn't want to lose the context of the yeah, city. Right. So eventually we knew someday, which is now, um, you know, maybe we'd be building new buildings. And so it's like, I mean, not only renovating them and turning them into, you know, residential, commercial, mixed use, but, um, you know, eventually building things in contrast to them. Yeah. Yeah, because as you described your background with all of that modern architecture and all the experience in those in those modern firms, and then knowing where where you are today in Detroit and doing or have your history in Detroit, uh, saving and renovating and and restoring the historic buildings, um, it's very interesting to hear that that becomes the foundation, sort of the the context of which you, then you can go back to your modern roots and design something with some context that, that you can reflect and respond to. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, the context, so context to me was like Richard Serra, the way Richard Serra looks at context and the way his work, you know, is, you know, makes you look at that context in a different way. So con I wasn't necessarily looking at it contextually like, like in postmodernism. Oh, sure. It, right. Right. Yep. You know, and, and, and so I, there, I, I just thought, you know, that was what was going to be most interesting. And certainly over time that the adaptive reuse we do, like that's, that's a lot of fun of it. And even the urban planning, urban design is like, well, how do we incorporate what's here, you know, into something new and really make it an authentic place. Um, and you know, but again, the, the financial part was a big piece of it. Um, it became an argument for um, keeping once once we actually helped educate people about tax credits and, you know, all these things that would actually help fill a gap of paying for things. It was uh, helped a lot. Do you imagine or do you do you um, propose that Detroit and the lessons learned at Detroit can be used in other cities that need that sort of um, help in terms of bringing a city back from, you know, from this vacant sort of forgotten state. There are cities all throughout North Carolina where I am that you can see that at one time they were thriving and now they're not and they need something 
to bring them back. And so you, do you imagine that, that using Detroit sort of as a, uh, as a case study is a, is a good way to look at that for those cities? Absolutely. For sure. And, and even back then we thought, you know, like I had said, you know, it's first to grow first to go. So, you know, well, it's going to become, it's potentially a model for, right. you know, about ways of, you know, other cities to sort of come back. And I, you know, we were, there were definitely examples that we were seeing, you know, the, in Denver and other places where, you know, historic buildings were being brought back, but many of those cities didn't fall as far as right, Detroit. For sure. Had. Yeah. Um, so that it's, it's more complex, but absolutely. There's a lot to learn here that can be applied to other cities yeah. for sure. Yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, major cities, obviously, there are a few cities that, that are at Detroit, uh, Detroit's stature and size that have gone so far as Detroit had gone. Um, but there are hundreds of smaller cities um, that were built yeah. around some industry that is no longer there that is that are just a, a vacant, right? They're just abandoned. And so learning some of the lessons that Detroit went through, maybe some of these smaller cities could could uh, learn from those and be able to, you know, re become reborn themselves. Absolutely. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's so many different ways. Uh, I mean, there's a few things happening now, like, you know, architectural buildings, um, the renovations and existing building work just surpassed new building recently. Interesting. So, they, yeah. you know, yeah. so the number, the amount of fee being generated, there's more fee being generated from adaptive reuse. So the whole sustainability conversation um, had, 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 can have a big impact because the most sustainable thing we can do right. is to renovate existing buildings and keep existing buildings. And, and so it's, it's a very pertinent argument now. Um, so there's that. Um, there's the, the potential financial benefits of historic tax credits and um, brownfield tax credits and all these things that help actually, you know, get the developments, you know, funded and, and going. Um, and then there's the character of those buildings right. in these you know, towns that, you know, that create these sort of mixed use um, places that people want to live. Um, and there's another piece, like the most affordable city in the country for entry level housing is Detroit. And so, you know, my employees, you know, buy houses in Detroit for, you know, $50,000, $100,000 and renovate them and, you know, and live in these really nice houses um, and, you know, that they renovate. And, you know, you can't do that in New York or Chicago or right. LA, San Francisco or Seattle. Um, so I think, um, you know, some of these neighborhoods you go to now and, like one, there's a there's a great coffee shop in an old church, and uh, and I was in it a few weeks ago, and I'm looking around, and I'm you know, I, I could have been in Brooklyn, but it was you know, except I know the people in there live in that neighborhood, in these houses that they're buying for very little and renovating, and the city's actually putting in parks and bike paths, and you know, so it's it's now spreading out. Um, and this has taken a while into the neighborhoods. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from here. Yeah.
Very, very interesting. Michael, thank you for coming by and sharing your story. It's a super interesting story to hear your background and then what's happening in, in Detroit and your and your role in the uh, the renaissance of Detroit is really interesting. So thank you for that. I, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you the one question that I ask everybody. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Um, well, so early on, you know, so I had that design background you know, at all these firms, right? But once I went out on my own, I realized how little I knew about, you know, business and running a firm and, you know, payroll taxes and just, you know, which we missed the first year. I mean, you know, really bad. Right. Um, yeah. Thought we were doing well. And then the end of the year, it's like, what do you mean we owe $70,000 in payroll taxes? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so, um you know, we, I don't, it, again, you know, architecture school is not something we necessarily focus on. Um, so I learned from some other architects that, oh, the AIA, which I had, of course, never been part of or thought about, you know, because when you're in school and you're in design field, you know, we all think, oh, bad. Um, but at that moment, um, I went to the National conference like back this was like the late 90s um because and all of a sudden i realized wow there's all these seminars and all these workshops and all these things that address the things i don't know right and it actually is a resource um a professional resource that um was valuable to me and so i've gone almost every year um and i recently this last one that was in chicago i took I don't know, four or five people from my office um, so that they could walk the floor and see the products and go to these seminars. And I, I think it's very valuable um, as a professional, um, you know, tool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've been to the AI conference as as far back as I can remember. I don't remember where, where I started, but I go every year and we'll be there again in San Francisco. Entree Architect, every time we go, we sort of grow on what we do there and bringing our community together while while we're at the conference. And so hopefully we'll see you in San Francisco. We'll be there. Um, yes. And uh, we look forward to it. That's a great, yeah. a great suggestion and answer to that question. Good. All right. Uh, one that was, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the last conference that was in San Francisco, um, I basically did the tour the whole time. And um, there was an article in the paper. They interviewed me and pointed that out. Like, you know, because I went to the convention, but all I did was the tours. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the tours are always amazing. And yeah. uh, so, which is another piece of why it's a great thing to go to because you see different cities and what they're doing. And, and I learned a lot, brought that back to Detroit too. Yeah. There's so much to do at the convention. The thing I like to do is just connect. I like to, to connect yes. with the people that I interact with every day online and have an opportunity to, you know, meet them one-on-one -on -one and say hi and, and network and sort of dream about yeah. what we can do and, and sort of help one another grow. Yeah. Well, on the floor, um, you know, building in Detroit, it's, it's expensive and the rents and the, you know, we've had to figure out how to build for less. Yeah. So I would go and search the floor for products, especially exterior products that, um, 
you know, we could use to help bring the price cost down. And, uh, and that was, that was great. Um, yeah. 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 Reese- His name is Michael Porras. You can learn more about Michael and the work that he's doing in Detroit at MacintoshPorras.com. They're also active on Instagram and Facebook. We'll have links to all of that on the show notes. So just go to the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Michael, thank you for the work that you do. Your story is fascinating to hear your, your story and all the traveling and all the firms that you've worked in and the work that you're doing today in Detroit. Um, helping Detroit come back from what it once once had declined to become, um, and your role in that is is interesting. But but uh, I appreciate you for that. I appreciate you for going back to Detroit and helping Detroit uh, become what it is today. And so thank you for that, and thank you for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Great, thank you. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, share a link with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Please share a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I'd appreciate it. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. It's the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at Gable Media at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go check it out. We have, I think, 13 podcasts over there now. Gablemedia.com. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ARCHICAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioning to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Architect to learn more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arla Page. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. 
I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.